I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, so we're studying typology of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. We've been looking at a bunch of stuff so far, principles on, on how we can identify types, how to justify the whole idea of looking for foreshadowing of Jesus in these different people. And right now, today, we're doing the life of David, David as a type of Christ. And I, um, I really like this. <laughs> I really love David as a type of Christ, and I think that he's, he's a type in more than one way in the Old Testament. So I'm going to get as far as I can today. There's lots and lots of content. I hope that I can cover a good amount of it, and it's a real blessing to you. I was debating whether or not to do this in two studies. I'm going to try and do it in one and cram it in there. Um, <clears throat> but the first question is, why should I think David is a type of Christ in the first place? Like, why should I consider this as an option? So far, I've mostly been looking at types where the New Testament, in fact, pretty much only looking at types where the New Testament sort of gives us, this is a type of Christ. You know, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Then we go back and analyze that image to get a better picture of it. And that's sort of the case with David. David is not clearly identified as a type in the New Testament in the sense where the New Testament says, David is a type of Christ. But there are ways in which David is related to Jesus. So let's give, let me give you some examples. So the question is specifically where in the New Testament does the Bible connect David and Jesus in some kind of typological sense, some foreshadowing sense? Well, um, Matthew 1 verse 1, that's actually the first verse we'll go to. Matthew 1 1. <clears throat> remember how, as you're on your way there, remember how Jesus was like Moses in the sense that he was the prophet like unto Moses? Well, the general idea about the Messiah is that he would also be the king like David. That this, this is a real legitimate connection. He's a king like David. And so Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, that's why it begins the genealogy of Jesus with this phrase. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Specifically those two people. And then he's going to unpack that genealogy in greater detail. But he mentioned specifically Abraham. So he's a descendant of Abraham. He's a Jew. And also he is the son of David. Then Matthew 1 verse 6, it's talking about like the genealogy, just giving a list of people related to Jesus. It says, and Jesse begot David, the king. David, the king, begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So David is the one person in the genealogy who's, who's labeled as being the king. To Matthew, this is important. To the Holy Spirit, as he inspires Matthew, this is important. That David is the king. Now, other people in the same line were also kings of Israel. Solomon was a king of Israel, but he's not called the king in the genealogy. So the emphasis is David is the king, even though he wasn't the only king. <clears throat> then, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 69, when Zechariah is, Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's dad, he offers a prophecy, and in his prophecy, he speaks about Messiah, about Jesus, and in Luke 1, 69, he says this, that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So once again, we're getting a connection between Jesus and David specifically um, as being the descendant of David, being the one who was ultimately a king like David. But when he uses this phrase, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, this connects to Psalm 132, verse 17, which is, and I'll read it to you. This is like a, a Davidic psalm. It says, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. So there's this descendant of David, this future coming descendant of David. And even Psalm 132 is like, hey, he's still coming. A horn will sprout unto David. And then Zechariah, when Jesus shows up, he's like, Jesus is the horn that sprouts unto David. So he's connected to David specifically in the Bible, but there's a lot more details. So let me give you more because I'm building a case, hopefully an ironclad case about the connection between David and Jesus. <clears throat> in Matthew 9, 27, there's blind men by the side of the road. And when Jesus shows up, they call out to him and they ask for healing. But what they say is really interesting. It says in Matthew 9, 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Why son of David? Son of David is a messianic kingly title. 
He was the coming king of Israel. Remember, he gets crucified for being the king of Israel. This is the the claim. He's the son of David. When Jesus heals a demon, a pre not a demon, excuse me, I paused to like breathe and it made my sentence sound wrong. When Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man who's blind and mute in Matthew 12, 23, it says, and all the people were amazed and said, and here's the response when Jesus heals this guy, can this be the son of David? They, this is the ultimate messianic king is the son of David. It's one of the titles of the Messiah. So we go on. In the triumphal entry, Matthew 21, 9, when Jesus enters in a week before his crucifixion, <clears throat> and it says, and crowds, actually a week before his resurrection, really, and the crowds that went before him that fo- and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So, Again, the messianic titles, the son of David, this, this connection between Messiah and David. Then when Jesus himself speaks on this topic, on, on who this guy is, <clears throat> in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, he has this whole conversation with the Pharisees where sometimes they try to bring trick questions to him. And I love it because it's almost like watching a debate, right? Like they bring a question, then he brings an answer and asks them a question. So here's where he asks them a question. And it's in Matthew twenty two forty one. It says, now while, they're, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, who do you think? What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. Obviously, they don't think he's the son of David, like direct biological, like David, but rather they would say son of. The phrase son of could mean grandson, great, 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 great grandson. You were still the son of that person. They were still called your father, so to speak. So they say the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, and he quotes the Psalms, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Lord said to my Lord, Jesus then in verse 45 says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him. And he leaves this hanging out there. The idea is that this son of David is also the Lord. Jesus is showing that his identity while he's the son of David and he responds to that title and the scriptures call him that specifically. We're saying there's more to him than merely being that. Um, Interesting. Psalm 110 is actually, that's the Psalm Jesus quotes to show that that this son of David is also the Lord of David, which means who is who's David's Lord? Who, who could he be? And um, one greater than David, so to speak. But it's Psalm 110 is also that Melchizedek Psalm, where it says, I've made you a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which we talked about several weeks ago. So how many times, I, I thought I'd look, how many times does Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, specifically relate Jesus and David together like this. They tie Jesus and David together in some sense. It happens nine different times. And these are not nine verses because in some times it happens in multiple verses, but I just consider that one time. But nine different occasions, nine different things going on where Jesus is related to David. So Jesus and David are definitely connected. This is pretty obvious, the concept of him being just like a prophet like unto Moses. He is a king like unto David so to speak. So <clears throat> this makes a lot of sense out of the Psalms when you think about it. When you go to the book of Psalms, you read like Psalm 22 and David writes a Psalm in first person, which appears to be about him, but is ultimately about the Messiah, the son of David, because the two are one's foreshadowing the other. The two are interlinked. This is why a lot of these Psalms, like what they call the imprecatory Psalms, that's the fancy term for it. These are the angry God crush them Psalms. Where, God, where he's just crying out, God, have wrath upon them. I've kept my hands clean and all this stuff. And they're psalms that make more sense in the mouth of Jesus than they do even in the mouth of David who wrote them. And so you go, ah, so there's this typological connection between Jesus and David that makes these psalms make even more sense. Psalm 22 is a great example of this, right? Where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? He talks about his hands and feet being pierced, um, his, his blood being poured out. He's dehydrated, all these different symptoms of, of crucifixion. And so then Jesus quotes this on the cross. And what's interesting is that in, even, even after that, in the Middle Ages, um, rabbis, the, a one popular opinion by rabbis was, was this phrase. In fact, I'll quote it to you. This is what they said about Psalm 22, right? Spoken by David, 
but somehow really about the Messiah. Well, Rashi is, is this, that's, you have to remember this phrase, Rashi, that's the guy's name. This is a, a Hebrew rabbi from the Middle Ages, the most popular Hebrew rabbi from the Middle Ages. This guy in particular, he was so popular, they've taken, they've taken his commentary on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they print it with their Bible, the Jewish Bible. It's printed with Rashi's commentary standard. That's just how it comes. So he's very authoritative uh, in uh, rabbinical Judaism. He said about Psalm 22, it was because of the ordeal of the son of David that David wept, saying, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You've laid me in the dust of death. That's one of his midrashes. So he says, I'm reading Psalm 22. Rashi's reading it and he goes, this stuff is written by David, but it's about the son of David. Why? Because David and the son of David are connected, foreshadowing, in typology. And this is from a non-Christian, non-Messianic Jewish source. So I think that's pretty neat. Um, So hopefully that helps you. I think even when you're reading the book of Psalms, you read it and you go, I see now how some stuff that David says that seems odd on his lips makes more sense on Jesus' lips because of the typological connection. So that's part one. Now we're stepping into part two. Part two, we're going to look at the life of David. We're just going to look chronologically through his life, kind of survey through the events of David's life from his his anointing as king to his trials and tribulations eventually becoming the king. Um, We'll look at all that and just ask, how is this like Jesus? How do we see Jesus in the life of David? So 1 Samuel is where we're going to go. So 1 Samuel chapter 16. In verse 1, we have the introduction of, of really why David comes up at all, right? There's already a king in Israel, and it's a guy named Saul. Saul is the king of the people. He's taller and better looking than, than, than everybody else, and he's, he's brought in. He's like the hero figure, the classic hero figure, and God rejects him. So in 1 Samuel 16.1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go... I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, just that phrase, I've provided for myself a king among his sons, to me is foreshadowing of Christ. Because he is ultimately the king, and it is among those sons. It is descendant from David, who came from Jesse. So, the anointing, here's here's how it happens. Um, In verse 2 through 5, we read that, He's worried. Samuel, who's the prophet of Israel, he was, a, he was also a judge of Israel, but he was, his major role was as prophet. Um, he's worried because he goes, if I head over there to anoint a king, guess what? King Saul's not going to like that. You know, kings don't usually like other kings being anointed in their presence. It's not something they usually enjoy. And so he is going to come under the guise of doing something else. So listen to this because I think there's typological significance. And Samuel said, verse 2, of 1 Samuel 16, how can I go? If if Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So he takes a heifer. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling and said, do you come peaceably? They're worried, like, are we in trouble? Is this a bad thing or a good thing? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So the anointing of the king happens at the same time as a sacrifice. Interestingly enough, to everyone else in Israel, it just looked like a sacrifice. But along with this sacrifice was the secret anointing of the new king. What does that sound like to you? <laughs> I'm like, that is totally what happens to Christ. Is he comes and he is sacrificed, yet he is king of kings and lord of lords as a result of this very thing. So we keep going. Samuel, he doesn't know during this anointing when he meets David, he doesn't know who the king is going to be. He knows it's somebody who's going to be from the descendant of Jesse, one of his sons, but he doesn't know which son. So in verse 6, as we keep reading, it says, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely... The Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so he does this thing where he marches down through the, through the sons of Jesse. Jesse's got a bunch of sons. I think he had seven sons, if I remember. I should have wrote that down. I think there were seven sons of Jesse. And he marches through the sons and he starts with the oldest. And he looks at Eliab and he's like, oh, this guy. Look at this guy. He's like king material, you know? So he's like, this is, Noah's like, nope, not him. I rejected him. And he goes through every son, every son, until finally all the sons are gone. And he goes, do you have any more sons? Jesse's like, well, yeah, I got, you know, David, but he's out with the sheep. They don't even bring him. He's left with the sheep. Now, what's interesting is later on, later on, when he goes to the, um, to the, uh, I'm, I'm looking for the verse. It's 1 Samuel 17, 20. When David goes to, to the battle with Goliath, he leaves the sheep, right? And it says in 1 Samuel 17, 20, they left a keeper with the sheep and David went and visited his brothers. Well, hold on. Samuel the prophet shows up. Says, Eli, uh, says Jesse, bring your sons to the sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. He doesn't even leave a keeper with the sheep. David just stays there alone. David, whatever's going on, you don't need to be there. It just sounds like he's like not cared for, like he's despised or something. Like there's what, like, just imagine this: you have the most famous guy in the country coming over to your house, invites you and your son specifically, and you leave one of them in the field with the sheep. But later on, when cheese and bread and you know food needs to be brought to the front lines, you you, you have a keeper then, and you send your son. So it's, it seems to me that um, that he was despised in a sense. And you might say, well, that's a stretch. But I think that 1 Samuel 17.20 confirms that. Isaiah 53, it says that Jesus was, uh, he grew up, Isaiah 53 verses 2 and through 3, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. So here we have Saul, this great looking king. Then we've got, okay, new king, he's bad. Elia, oh, not him, no, not next one, not the next one, not the next one. No, which son? The one that was the youngest, the one that was the smallest, so to speak, and despised. Or at least despised, at least in a foreshadowing sense, if not in some fuller sense. It also is interesting to me that Samuel shows up, I'm going to anoint the new king. And he like shows up going, and I don't know who it is. Do you get, do you get the idea that Samuel's in the dark? Samuel knows there's a new king coming. He knows it's God's chosen, but he doesn't know what he looks like. And he knows he just has to go and get ready to anoint him. And this sounds to me like 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it talks about how the prophets, they foresaw the sufferings of Christ, but they didn't really understand it. So they just said what they knew, but they didn't understand it fully. Let me read this to you. This is a verse I, I share frequently because I think it's so neat about how the Old Testament works. 1 Peter 1, 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What person or time? Like, who is this Christ going to really be like? When is this really going to happen? They didn't know the full answer. But verse 12, it says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that you have now been that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the prophets knew, you know, that much about Jesus. They share it, they write about it, but they don't know how it'll look when it's fulfilled. So Samuel knew that much about David, but didn't know what it would look like. In fact, he got it wrong. He's like, surely this is the one. Oh no, not him. He does this over and over again with every one of the sons. Then he's finally anointed. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David is one of those rare Old Testament people who had the Holy Spirit rush upon him, you know, come into his life in some empowering way and stay with him. Now we see this among select individuals. The New Testament reality is that we're supposed to all be able to walk in this. That's the idea of the New Testament reality. Um, but, but this anointing, at the anointing, the Holy Spirit rushes upon him. This, this relates to Christ. You know, Christ, he comes and he's baptized by John the Baptist and that's the beginning of his ministry, right? The, at the baptism of John, that's when it all begins. That's the beginning of his ministry. 
So it's there when he's baptized in Matthew 3.16. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. So I think what we, what we see here is a connection between the anointing of David and the, you know, and the anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit. As you keep reading, um, David then goes on. The next kind of thing he does in his life is he helps Saul with a, with a harmful spirit from the Lord that was upon Saul. Saul goes through these weird spiritual battles that he, that he experiences, right? After God rejects him and this sort of evil spirit comes upon him and is basically oppressing him in some sense. David comes and he helps. And how does he help? He plays music. What kind of music does he play? He probably, maybe he was playing some of his psalms. You know, and he's, he's playing and he's singing to the Lord and that eases the burden that Saul has. And Jesus, after his anointing, he goes out and he's casting out demons and he's casting out the evil spirits of the people in Israel. And then we start to get this issue of Saul and David, like as this counterpoint between the two of them, Saul is the bad King. He's the people's choice. And Jesus, of course, or David, excuse me, is, the, is, is God's choice and is the good king. And all the other kings of Israel, they're all compared to one guy later on, right? As you read through First Kings, through Chronicles, you read through these books, they're all compared to David. Oh, and so-and-so was a bad king. He didn't do like David did. So-and-so was a good king. He did like David did. David's like the, the example, the, the king in, in, uh, in, in the mind of, of the Bible as you compare all others to him. And Saul, I don't know, I wonder if there might be, this gets into our eschatology, but I wonder if Saul might have some connection between him and the Antichrist because he is the king in the eyes of the people who is ultimately rejected by God and who causes problems to the people until they later uh, come to the, to the king who is God's choice. Maybe, maybe, but that's, that's a different issue. That's not just about Jesus, that's about eschatology stuff, so let's move on. Um, David was known to the prophet but not to the king. I think that's interesting too. It was known to the prophet, but not to the king. In fact, it was known just to the prophet and it was hidden from so many people and very slowly people started to, to realize these things over time. Jesus, he was known to the prophet, but not to the king. Whether you're talking about King Herod or you're talking about Caesar, they just, they didn't get it. These things were not revealed to them. Scripture kind of talks about this. God chose to reveal it to, to the lowly instead of the high. Interesting. Purposely hidden from the king. <clears throat> David's kingship replaces a previously ordained temporary king. Saul, he was ordained. God did call him. He's the anointed of God, right? But he was a temporary king and then David's to replace him as being like, aha, now, we've, now we're there. So Jesus, he will eventually be king of kings, lord of lords, and he will take over the world. And though, according to Romans 13, governmental kings, they're, they're ordained by God. Yet that's all temporary, and Christ will eventually come and be the one in charge. Romans 13 or 14? Well, if you don't know, then I'm right. So, Okay, let's talk about David being a shepherd. Because it's not just incidental that David was with the sheep when his brothers all came before uh, Samuel the first time around. So... David is, is known as not only was he a shepherd, but his shepherding or him being a shepherd was like central to his identity. So we're going to look through some verses that talk about this because Jesus, of course, is the good shepherd. So let's connect these together. Ezekiel 34, verse 23 and 24 is a prophetic statement about the future. It's in Ezekiel. It's written hundreds of years after the time of David. And he's talking about some time, you know, thousands of years beyond then. And in Ezekiel 34, 23, it says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed, the, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be, a, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So David's identity as David, the shepherd of Israel, he's called this several times in the Bible. But then there's this prophetic statement in Ezekiel about some future David's going to show up and he'll be the one shepherd for my people. Now, some people interpret this to think, okay, David in the resurrection will be like maybe during the millennium, he's going to be reigning over the people of Israel. 
Others say, no, it's the typological connection between Jesus and David is so strong that the Bible says David, and it's just talking about Jesus because he's the king like David. And that may be the case. In John 10, Jesus says this, verse 14 through 16. Now think about this. If you're a Jew, you know Ezekiel 34, right? You know David, my shepherd, one shepherd, and he'll feed them and be their shepherd and all that. In John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And that connects to what it says in Ezekiel 34, that there'll be one flock and one shepherd. Interesting. So Jesus maybe here is tying the connection between David and Jesus. A related passage in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 2 Samuel 5 verses 1 and 2, it says this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, Saul was king over us. It was when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel because he was leading military for Israel. And the Lord said to you, and here's where they tell David about a prophecy they know about David. So we have it preserved here in Second Samuel 5. So the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So he's the shepherd, prince over Israel. That's David's identity as a shepherd with the sheep. He was a good shepherd who did what? Who laid his life down for the sheep, didn't he? He talks about how there was a bear and a lion and he went after them and fought them to get his sheep back. He laid his life down for the sheep. And then they refer to him as the shepherd of Israel. In Matthew 2, 6, it says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. Where was Jesse born? Or where did Jesse live and David was born? Bethlehem. So, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler. Do you know the rest of this verse? Who will shepherd my people Israel. So the shepherd concept is strong. The shepherding is strong with this one, right? Between David and Jesus, it's important that he's a shepherd. Very interesting. Very interesting stuff. Okay, 1 Samuel 16, 13. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil um, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord, oh, I don't know why I'm reading that one again. Psalm 78, verses 70, verse 70. I don't know why I just copied that down again. Someone needed that verse, right? That's, the Lord leads me in all my mistakes. Um, Psalm 78, verse 70. I'm just making fun of other preachers right now, sorry. Um, it says, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, and brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance, with it, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So bottom line, David is the iconic king of Israel whom all the other kings are compared to. Tied into that identity as king is that he's the shepherd for Israel. Jesus comes as the son of David to be the ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment, doing even what David only foreshadowed. Being the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, that there might be one flock, Jew, Gentile, not just, not just Judah, and, uh, and Israel, not just the, the tribes of Israel, but r- what, rather the people of the earth, gathered together, one in Christ, to know God, to walk in God, to um, experience what he's done. So, let's look at 1 Samuel 17. Because <laughs> I'm not even close to done just yet. David and Goliath. You're very familiar with the story. I could spend the whole time on just this story, but I will not do that. I'm just going to look at some typological things that we find here. So David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17. Um, the, the backstory here is that the, the Philistines, who are like the constant enemies of Israel at the time, they're gathered together and their army is on one hill or mountain on one side. There's a valley in between and nobody's there pretty much. On the other hill or mountain, we have the army of Israel. So you've got two armies on the mountains. In the middle is the valley. Basically, if you come down to the valley to fight, you got the low ground, and we know how that works for Anakin Skywalker. It's like, don't even do it, man. You're you've lost. They've got the high ground. Just stop, Annie. Don't you know? And uh, and yet, 
this this is kind of like they're sort of locked in arms and they and they don't neither neither army wants to charge the other army because it's just it's just unwise so they decide to do battle by champion or at least the philistines want to do this and that's what goliath is he's the champion he's going to charge out there and he's going to go have a battle say hey just me one guy faces one guy from your army whoever wins you win the war it's actually in a sense a really good way to solve an issue like that, if people will honor it, if people will honor it, the decisions, but it seems like it doesn't usually happen. So Goliath goes out, he's going to do battle by champion, and um, that's in 1 Samuel 17, 4. It says, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. The Hebrew for champion, like the word itself, literally means a man between the two. Isn't that interesting? The word for champion there, it means a man between the two. So he, I'm going to be like, here's my army, there's your army. I'm going to stand between the two and I'll be the champion to represent my people. Bring out your champion to represent you. Meaning that the whole context setting this up is one man to represent all the people. What does that sound like to you? <laughs> one man to represent all the people to fight one battle to win the whole war. That's Jesus. So David... This is how he finds out about it. He's not even part of the military at this point, right? He takes care of the sheep. He plays music for Saul. He is not part of the military. So 1 Samuel 17, 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Nobody wants to fight this guy. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who was who has come up surely he has come up to defy israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in israel meaning they don't have to pay like whatever fines or fees were levied on them um, by saul and david said to the men who stood by him what shall be done for the man who kills this philistine and takes away the reproach from israel for who is this uncircumcised philistine that he should defy notice he doesn't just say israel he says, the armies of the living God. To him, this is a spiritual battle that's going on, right? This isn't just the physical thing. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Um, I like that David saw this for what it was. He didn't just look out and say, big guy, scary. He rather sees that this is about God's kingdom. And this is about the fact that Goliath's coming here mocking God, mocking our God, mocking us against our God and that sort of thing. That's what he cared about. He had lots of zeal and he had a lot of courage. And he asks about the results. The results are highlighted in the passage. What will be done for the man who kills Goliath? These are the results. One, it'll take away the reproach of Israel. That's, that's what David says. He goes to take away the reproach of Israel. In Colossians 1.22, it says that Jesus has now reconciled in the body of, of flesh excuse me, he's reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus, through his death, through his one act as our champion, the man who goes between, he takes care of our reproach. So that's the one thing. The first thing he's like, this will, the result will be the reproach is taken away. The second one is the man will be enriched. The man will be wealthy. Or at least he's supposed to be. I don't know if Saul honored any of these things later on, but this is what's supposed to happen. And it's highlighted not because it happened. It's highlighted because it's supposed to happen, which actually fits its typology more than anything else. David will supposedly be enriched, right? But uh, the, the Bible says that Jesus, after making his sacrifice on the cross, was given the name above every name. He's now exalted. And it says in Hebrews 1, 2, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of half of everything. No, of all things, the, the entire everything, <laughs> all things, the entire universe. He's the heir of all things. But then it's careful to note, in case you think that Jesus, like in Mormon theology, Jesus basically wasn't as great as he was. Um, basically, in his, you know, before his first coming, he was good and everything. You know, his firstborn, you know, son of God in a sense. But then he came down, died, and then he became exalted and became a god. So his second state was better than his first state before his coming. That's the Mormon theology. But Hebrews is careful to point out through whom also he created the world. And then it goes on. He's the brightness of his glory and all these things. So Jesus is, his state from before and after were the same. But yet the idea is he's enriched. He's enriched. 
The third thing that David gets, or is supposed to get, doesn't exactly quite get, is a bride, Saul's daughter. So he's going to take away reproach, he's going to enrich himself, and he's going to gain a bride. And I think that we know what bride that might be if we're looking at foreshadowing. Now, it's interesting to me how his brothers respond, because David's now talking smack. He's like this uncircumcised Philistine, like, who's going to, wait, what are you going to, let's just go get him, like, I'll get him. And so in 1 Samuel 17, 28, we have his brothers. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Like you're just being nosy or something. And um, the idea here is that David's brother, maybe brothers, don't believe in him. In John 7, 5, it says, for even his brothers, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. That's interesting as well, isn't it? Hmm. Now, later on, they're going to gather with him. When he's hiding in the caves and his family actually comes to be with him. Maybe they believed in him later on, like Jesus' brothers did too. So David gets ready for battle with Goliath in, Goliath in uh, 1 Samuel seventeen forty. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine, right? He's, he comes with what? The implements of a shepherd, a staff and a sling. He puts the, the stones where? In his shepherd's pouch. Like, that's really macho, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> he comes with the implements of a shepherd to fight this battle. Why? Because he tried Saul's... Now, back then, armor was really rare. You had to be very wealthy to own armor, own even a sword for that matter, your own weapons and things like this that weren't just like farming implements turned into weapons. And Saul, he had a set of armor, maybe the only one available, and he tries to give it to David, but Saul's huge. So it doesn't fit David, it's too big for him. And he's like, yeah, I don't know how to even walk in this stuff. And so he just says, forget it, I'm just going to be my staff. <laughs> he goes with his staff and his sling, which is of course like a piece of cloth, a string on it and his shepherd's pouch with five stones. So he goes to battle as a shepherd. The good, the good shepherd lays his life down, right? Then the taunting begins. Uh, in 1 Samuel 17, 45, um, David responds to, I won't read the, the taunts from the Philistine, from Goliath here, but, but he's mocking the God of Israel, mocking David. He's like, you, you're coming to me with a stick? <laughs> and, am I a dog? Did you come at me with a stick? He's laughing and it's funny how he's like, you're coming with a stick. And I just, I wonder because Jesus conquered Satan with some sticks, basically, with, with just wood, um, uh, what, with what looked like would be his own demise, ended up being the enemy, the enemy's demise. But then David responds in verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He comes in Yahweh's name. That's what I notice. David's like, how am I going to fight you? How am I coming? In Yahweh's name. It's not about what I've got with me. It's about God. In John 5, 43, Jesus says, I've come in the name of my father and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. In John 12, 13, it says, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And here's David. When did David come in the name of the Lord? He came to kill Goliath. The name of the Lord Jesus shows up and he has the same sort of showdown going on right then even. 1 Samuel 17, 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. This is David continuing to talk to the Philistine. The Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the, be to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give, it, give, uh, give you into our hand. The meaning of this victory that David has with Goliath is given to us by David's own words. He's like, the point of this is so that they'll know God's not going to save us with sword and spear. That there's an unconventional salvation for the people. That's the idea. 
an unexpected method of victory. Then there's the battle in verse 48, which connects to Jesus. If, if, I don't think I need to make the connections all of them for you. I think you'll see it. Verse 48, it says, When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, the Philistine singular, just Goliath, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, took the Philistine's sword, Goliath's sword, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Interestingly, the, the way this all happened, he's defeated with a stone. Now, we've already done this, so I won't do it again, but the connection, there's multiple connections between stones and Jesus in the Bible. Deliberate, purposeful, clear connections. This is not, we're not doing guesswork here, right? This is clear. He is, he is the, the rock that was struck. I mean, he is, uh, in, in Daniel, you know, he is the stone that, that com- made without hands that comes and strikes and destroys the kings of the world and fills the earth. He is this stone. And so I think there may be a connection here is that he's killed with a stone. In fact, the battle, the, the original ultimate battle prophesied in Genesis is that Eve's descendants would be, right? His heel would be crushed or bruised rather by the serpent, but he would crush the serpent's head. And here we have this stone going into Goliath's head and just one blow crushes his skull and he falls down flat. But that's not the thing that ends it entirely. I mean, the battle's basically over, right? Now David just walks over, (laughs) grabs the guy's sword, and chops off his head. So there's like this two-stage victory in a sense. So with Christ, in his first coming, he threw the stone that struck down the enemy. In his second coming, he comes with a sword. Right? In Revelation. That's the first time you read about Jesus with a sword, is the book of Revelation. And he's coming back that way. Interesting. So then Saul gets jealous. King Saul gets jealous as we move away from the, 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 the uh, study with Goliath and we talk about Saul and David and their interaction. Saul tries to kill David a lot. Like he does this multiple times. David will be playing music and Saul, Saul picks up a, a spear and just throws it at him. Could you imagine? I, sometimes I think about this. What was it like in the room? Like he's the king of Israel. Like what right do we have but he's going crazy. You know, he threw his spear at David, and David's like, whoop. You know, what, what did he do? David's just like, I'll come back later when you're feeling better. You know, like, what do you do at that point, you know? But Saul tries to kill him with spears a couple different times. Tries to kill him with Philistines, where he sets, he sets him a task to kill a certain number of Philistines that he thinks David will fail. David succeeds. He tries to kill him with his own soldiers that he sends out to kill him. He sends out people to go go get David and just kill him and they can't instead they prophesy it's this really interesting story in first Samuel 19 they head out they they're gonna we're gonna get David and they just prophesy what did they prophesy I don't know maybe it was about Jesus maybe it was about David being the future king I don't know what they prophesied but but they prophesied and then he sends out another group and they prophesy and he can't get people to take to take David then Saul goes out himself and he prophesies so let me, let's read the passage, 1 Samuel 19, verse 19. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, because he wants to kill him. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, um, by the way, Samuel's there, right? So in Samuel standing as head over them, Samuel's there with this group of, of prophetic people, and they're prophesying. It says, then the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. In other words, they can't take him down because God intervenes when they try to take him. Verse 22, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. 
And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Remembering a saying of the time. By the way, when the Bible refers to someone being naked, I don't think it requires full entire nakedness. Um, we are somewhat twisted in our thinking that we that we that we have a culture where you could be wearing a a bikini and you're considered clothed. <laughs> think about that. So anyway, um, John seven forty four. It says this about connecting this to Jesus. It says some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to him, said to them, why did you not bring him? They, they're like, go arrest him. And then they come back and they didn't bring Jesus. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. They're like, we just couldn't do it. I, I, I we, No, no one's ever talked like this guy. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? In fact, we even read about Caiaphas who prophesied, prophesied that Jesus would die for the people. Now, what's interesting is he didn't understand the prophecy. Just like First Peter says, some of the even prophets didn't understand the, all the details about their own prophecies. So he didn't get it. But later on, he supports the crucifixion of Jesus thinking, ah, when they kill Jesus, it'll save us because he's claiming to be king and it's going to cause an uproar and then Rome's going to come and crack down on us. They didn't realize, no, he's going to save us. Salvation, like actual forgiveness of our sins. And so he too, like Saul, who's trying to kill David, Caiaphas trying to kill Jesus, prophesies about him. Isn't that interesting? So the, so the rightful future king is persecuted and rejected by the authority who's supposed to be pointing to him, but they're more concerned about their own power and reputation. That's, it's just like Jesus. In John eleven, forty-eight. I'll read the passage to you. It says, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest in that year, said, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Perish, Not perish. That's a different thing altogether. Wrong translation there on my part. Um, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but for, but also to gather into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad so that, so from that day uh, on, they made plans to put him to death. So the plan, the agenda now is to kill Jesus. It really is like Saul. He's, he knows stuff about David. He knows you'll read later. He knows that David's going to be the next king. But he plots it against him anyways. Okay, then David. Next thing he does that's worth you know think of interest to us is in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel. He goes to Achish and, um, uh, in Gath and he pretends to be insane. This is a really strange passage, right? Where he like he's letting spit come down his beard and he's worried. He's like, I'm being chased by Saul. I can't go to Israel. So he goes to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are like, hey, this is the champion of Israel. So they, they might attack him and seek to kill him. So he pretends to be insane. Now, the, if there's a parallel here, I'm, I'm, this is a stretch. I fully admit it, okay? This, I, I will be, all my cards are on the table, right? This is a stretch. If there's a parallel here, to me, the, the parallel is this, is that David was an offense to the Jews, right? And he was foolishness to the Gentiles. And that's what the Bible says about Jesus. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. He literally went and they thought he was crazy, right, to the, to the Gentiles and to the Jews, the, the ones in charge, you know, Saul and his group. They were offended by him. His, his David has slain his ten thousands, you know, and offended by the prophecies made concerning him, offended by, by the fact that God was anointing was on him. So they attacked them. So I think that's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. Maybe 60, 40, something, maybe 70, 30, I don't know. 99 what? No, I don't know. Maybe. All right. So uh, the next thing that happens is David, then he goes in his life. He hides among the Gentiles and he's, he's then eventually received among the Gentiles. Actually, the non, this is where David's next season of his life is he's received by the Gentiles while he is rejected by his own people. Have you guys caught the theme yet? As we've been doing this with Joseph, as we looked with Moses, we're seeing this now in David too. God is setting up these consistent foreshadowings. So 1 Samuel 22 verses 1 and 2, 
It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and, and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So now they come to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So the, the groups of people are just in distress, in debt, and bitter in soul. And they gather to David during his time where he's being rejected by ultimately uh, the larger part of his own people. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, we read about the poor in spirit, those who mourn and those who are meek. We, Jesus saying, come to me, all you who labor and weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. We, we read about this in 1 Corinthians 1.26. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Now, this is going to be a, a, in multiple cases where God does this. He gathers a people to himself, in this case to David, who are like the off-scouring of society. You know, like, what use are you? Come to me. And then they become his mighty men. Isn't that interesting? Total coincidence, though. Just a coincidence. In 1 Samuel 27, we have David now serving Achish. This may have been actually a different Achish, uh, uh, could have, or it could have been the same one, I'm not sure, because Achish might have been a title, or it could have been a name. So David's now serving him, and this is really, it's kind of neat. David, as far as they're concerned, David has now rejected his own people, Israel, and he's going around and he's working for the Gentiles. But he's not. Secretly, he goes out and he fights for Israel, and then he comes back and tells them, like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I killed who you wanted me to kill. Like, he's, he's tricking them. Now, there's a season where after the rejection of, of Jesus by the Jewish people, the larger, eventually, at first it was Jewish, the largest part of Christianity was Jewish, but eventually it's Gentile. It's a Jewish minority amongst mostly Gentile. And to a lot of Jews, they look and they're like, Jesus, basically he works for the Gentiles. And that's how it's viewed to them. Yet, the Lord is still preserving his people, Israel. He's still fighting for them. He's still helping them and he's still with them. I think that's really interesting. Then we have David in a situation where he, he's, he, he has an opportunity to kill Saul multiple times. How much more do I, do I have here? Oh no, I'm getting worried. Oh well, you'll just have to miss out on stuff. So David will not kill Saul um, on two separate occasions. And he simply says, no, it's not time. I won't kill Saul. It's not time. And if Saul represents the enemies of, of Jesus ultimately persecuting him, whether it's the kingdoms of this world or the Antichrist or something like that, he has the power to take them down, but it's not the time yet, is the idea. Then Saul dies. In 1 Samuel 31, Saul dies, but not by David's hand. It's by the Philistines. And note the tragedy that fell on Saul and on Israel after they had rejected David. If they had just kept David, he would have been there with them in that battle. They probably would have done fine. right? But so Israel, terrible tragedies fell upon them as a nation after having rejected um, Jesus. A few more points in semi-closing. Um, David regularly inquires of the Lord. It happens consistently, and it's a theme in his life. I was just reading through the life of David, which is a rather large portion of scripture, by the way. Um, <laughs> just, I take it back. I'm just kidding. It was a joke. But, um, but David, he inquires of the Lord. He does this all the time. He's always inquiring of the Lord. Should I go here? Should I do this? Should I attack those people? Should I run from this person over here? What should I do? He's always inquiring of the Lord. Um, in John 5.19... Jesus says, the son can do nothing of his own, own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. That Jesus, he, part of his humanity was that he was living dependent upon the father for the direction of what he would do, healing people or whatever he was going to do. He was always being led of the Lord. David, we find this probably more than any other king of Israel. This is consistent in him. David was zealous for one major thing after he became king. What did he care about? It seems more than anything else. Anybody know? The temple. Man, he wanted that Ark of the Covenant there in Jerusalem with him where he, was, where he was king. He wanted that temple built and he planned it out. He was told he couldn't build it, but he had just so much zeal. When did he dance with might before the Lord? When they were bringing the Ark in. And he didn't care if it made him look foolish, right? Zeal for God's house consumed him. That was David. 
Well, that's what it said of Jesus, that zeal for the Lord's house consumed him. He shows up and he's overturning the tables. He's like, what did you do to my temple? You know, and he's upset about it. He designs the temple, but he's not allowed to build it. And this is where I think Solomon becomes a type of Christ and David becomes a type of the father. Because here's how it works. David is told, 1 Chronicles 28.3, from God, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. The idea was that the house for my name needs to be built by someone who has not shed blood. Because Jesus would die. He wouldn't do it by war. He would die to build the house. So, David designs it. Did you know that? He, he, the blueprints, all that. David did all that. He even gathered resources and materials for it. He planned it all out. So that when Solomon came, he's like, finally, it's time. You're here. Do it. Build the house. So Solomon builds the house. So the father plans it. The son fulfills it. This, to me, looks very much a lot like what Jesus did. The best part is right here, but I don't feel like I have time, so I'll skip it. Um, Let's see. I'm I'm skimming through my notes here to see what else I might include. Um, David has a prayer for Solomon. And I feel like it could almost be said about Jesus. And keep in mind, the Davidic promise, the promise God made to David, we've talked about this already, but it was a promise to David about his future son. It was specifically directed to Solomon, but the words work even better for Jesus. It's one of those foreshadowing things. So here's his prayer for his son before he dies in 1 Chronicles 29, 19. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Speaking of the temple. That he may what? Keep God's commandments and perform all of them. He's praying that Solomon will, will, will fully obey all of the law. Jesus shows up and he's like, what? I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. These words make more sense with Jesus than they do with Solomon. And of course he built the house. Um, he says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he's speaking of the temple of his body. And then he makes us his body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> The last thing in David's life I'll mention here is 2 Samuel 24. And here it is at the end of the book of 2 Samuel. And it's the last thing it really says about him. And it's about a plague. The, the story's interesting. When you take 2 Samuel and Chronicles, you take the two passages, put them together. What you get is this. Israel is in sin. And then God divinely orchestrates. I won't get into all the whole sovereignty issues that are related to this, but God divinely orchestrates that David will have a census of Israel and then God will judge David and Israel through this sin. This census was somehow sinful. He shouldn't have done it. So David, he then does the census and then a plague enters the land and thousands are dying because of this plague. And then there's this vision of this angel who the plague stops. It's an angel actually slaying people. And the angel stops, and he stops there in in Jerusalem at Arana's threshing floor. We get two different names for this guy, depending probably on just different ways of pronouncing his name in in, um, Chronicles and Samuel. But there there he is at the threshing floor of Arana, right? And David's like, okay, the angel had stopped there, like waiting. And David goes out now on behalf of Israel, and he makes sacrifices, Right there on the spot, he makes a bunch of sacrifice. And the sacrifice stops the plague, even though it was supposed to continue. It stops the plague. That's it. That's the end. The last thing David does in Second Samuel is intercede for the people, make a sacrifice, and stop the plague, the plague of death. And where did he do it? Around his threshing floor? You know what, you know what they did there later on? When Solomon built the temple, you know where he built it? Right where David had done his sacrifice, right there in Jerusalem, around his threshing floor, also known as Mount Moriah, where Abraham had offered Isaac. Right where the temple is. Foreshadowing? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think we are pretty safe to say that. I think that there's these all these different elements in the life of David, and there's probably more that I didn't even notice and don't know about, and I'm happy to find out about more in the future. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just... Just neat stuff, neat stuff. Now, one thing I'll tell you to announce, I'd like to do, and I don't know if I'll get to it next week or if it's going to be a couple weeks out. As I do this study on typology, I get worried that people would misuse this because you can totally abuse typology. I'm, you may not think I am, but I'm being very careful 
and very thoughtful in how I present it and what I do. I have to have New Testament truth in order to find some Old Testament typology. That's kind of the general idea. But some people abuse typology. And I thought, how do I protect people who are part of the series from abusing typology? And I thought, well, how about we just in one of our studies, we just do a bunch of examples of bad typology. So I'm going to dig up people doing this wrong. And we're going to do a study where we, where we, not to make fun of anybody, but we look at it and just go, why is that wrong? Because I feel like we need to make sure we don't go overboard and we don't go off the rails, so to speak. So we'll, we'll do that uh, maybe next week if I can pull it together in time. Oh, two weeks. I have two weeks because next week is the wedding. Yeah, so we're not here next week. So yeah, maybe two weeks will be enough time to prepare. We'll see. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we are grateful. We're grateful, Father, for um, just the tapestry of Scripture uh, to see Jesus. It's exciting. It's just exciting to see this stuff. Um, we're grateful, Lord, for who you are and for what you've done. And we're excited to just see more and more of Jesus throughout the scriptures, um, as I think you've always intended for us to see. We just pray for wisdom, discretion, but also insight into the scriptures as we do this. And we ask that we would be um, equipped to share these truths with others and encourage and uplift and help them. In Jesus' name, amen.